And if you'll stand out of respect for God and his word, I would gladly appreciate it. And we will be reading the entirety of the 45 verses. Give you a chance to stretch your legs for a few moments, since you'll be sitting for a while. So I'll pick up at verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and then they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, 
and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Thou therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for, the food, for food in the cities and let them keep it. That the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. That's God's word. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us these many years. We thank you for the work that has gone before us in which you allowed people to translate these words that are originally written in Hebrew, Old Hebrew, to bring it into English, a language that we can understand, that we speak. We thank you for the truth of your word. And now, Lord, we ask, open our eyes, open our ears, that we may hear what you're saying and understand and order our lives accordingly. Lord, I pray that you would use me now because I desire that you're pleased, because I know that you're watching and listening and observing all that is being done in the churches. And so, Lord, I ask that you are honored by what is done today, what has been done and what yet is yet to be done. Lord, would your spirit move among us? Help me to communicate to your people. But, Lord, you do the work because you're the only one who deserves to receive the praise, the honor, and the glory. We ask these things in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much.
So at Living Water Community Church, one of the things that we try to do here is that we offer groups to help you, to help me in our faith walk with God. Sometimes we offer groups that have specific topics that we focus on. For example, there are times when we offer a course called Financial Peace University. Perhaps a number of you have been exposed or taken that course, whether here at Living Water or in another church previous to your attendance here. But you know, if you've been in that course, Dave Ramsey, although entertaining, uh, does dispense wisdom about finances. Uh, and at least in my life, I found him to be extremely helpful in ordering my financial life for the future. There's one particular uh, memory that stands out to me from the course, uh, illustration that he tells in the first session. And he tells a number of them all back to back, but this one stood out to me because of my perhaps stage of life. I have young children. And he started to tell this illustration uh, just illustrating a family, just uh, no specific family, just a general idea of a family who had young kids. And he was talking about this idea of finances and how there are things that we as people realize about the future of the world, but we don't always order our lives according to the knowledge that we have about the future. And so he told the story about this one family just saying, you know, they have these kids and they realize that when kids are younger, they generally tend to grow. And so that when a kid is in one year of school, when they actually get to the next year, there is most likely a high probability that the same clothes that they wore this year, they won't be able to fit them next year. But in this family, as he was telling the story about this family, he talked about how when they came to August of the next year and school was upon them, all of a sudden they realized that little Johnny had grown. That when he put his pants on, he looked like he was about to walk through a flooded basement. And so they say all of a sudden, the spouses to each other, we have an emergency here, an emergency. Little Johnny has grown as if they didn't know that was going to happen. And so they go out to the local shopping mall or shopping outlet center, and there they pull out their credit card, and they find tennis shoes and swipe. And they buy new pants and swipe. And they buy new shirts and swipe. And thus the debt cycle begins. All because they did not use the knowledge that they had about the future to plan wisely. Now, finances is easy for us to see how having knowledge of the future should affect our lives today. Some of us have been wise in our dealings, and thus our lives demonstrate that. Others of us did not make so wise decisions. As a result, our lives demonstrate that as well. But there are some other realities, not just in the area of finances, that we know are unavoidable realities that are coming, that will affect us all, and yet we may or may not be ordering our lives in accordance to that. See, as we read the book of Proverbs, one of the things that we discover is the difference between the wise person and the fool, who has a little brother called the naive, is that the only difference about them is the decisions they make in light of what the knowledge that they have. That's what makes you either a wise person or a foolish person. And that's what I want to talk about today. So I want to kind of act like a real estate agent, and this house that I want to show you has three floors. And I just want to simply walk you through the three floors of the house, and when we come to the end, hopefully you'll get the message that I'm trying to communicate today. And so we want to do that from the life of Joseph. So we're going to return to the text here in Genesis chapter 41. Well, as, we, as you remember, it's been a few days since we last got together. Uh, the last time we left Joseph... Uh, he was languishing in prison. Uh, he had, of course, been forgotten by one of Pharaoh's officials, uh, the cupbearer, because as, as we read in the text, 
uh, the baker didn't fare so well. He didn't come out of the situation. Uh, he ended up getting hanged, and so he, he, did, he couldn't go on to talk to Pharaoh. But the cupbearer did. But what we find out about the cupbearer, because Joseph, of course, uh, being in prison is not a fun place to be. Uh, and when you make a connection with a person who has potential to help you, you ask them, hey, could you advocate for me? Would you mind talking to Pharaoh, who is the, the resident power source, who can pardon me and release me from this situation because I don't deserve to, to be here? Well, with a cupbearer, like most of us, although people might ask us favors and we might promise to, to keep those promises and say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll remember you. Well, he got back to his station of life and got back to his enjoyment of wealth and uh, his privilege of being the cupbearer, and soon Joseph just seemed to uh, fall into the back recesses of his mind, and two years passed, and Joseph is forgotten. But thankfully, today's story, as we encounter it, is, uh, I think about NASA often, that's exactly what happens in the story. It's, it's like the shuttle. His life literally just blasts off, and it's what we Americans like it's a, it's a rags-to-riches story that we see in Genesis chapter 41. And we say, well, well, why is there this dramatic change of life circumstances for him? It's because of this theme that's been going on in his life that we've encountered now for the third time. It's the issue of dreams. Dreams were the catalyst that got him into his humiliation, and dreams will be the means by which he realizes his exaltation. But when we come to Genesis 41, unlike previous chapters when, when the, the narrator left the scene and, and we come back, he, he brings us back right to where we were. And on this occasion, we find ourselves in a place that we probably would not expect. Uh, we're not in the prison house with Joseph. We find ourselves surrounded by the opulence of a palace and no less than in Pharaoh's bedroom with him. It's night. And we, the readers, are granted privileged access to what I'm sure if I was a neuroscientist, I would love to see, to have access to the realm of human dreams, to see what people dream when they are asleep. So what is it that Pharaoh dreamed in his dream? In the first part of the dream, which is a two-part dream, we see that he dreams about being standing at the lifeblood of what is uh, the lifeblood of Egypt, the Nile River, by which made them, at least in the Roman Empire, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire because of the Nile flowing through, making it a place where grain can grow. And here, uh, this is nothing unusual. He's standing by the Nile, and, and there are cows. That's nothing unusual. And, and these are nice cows. They're, they're fat cows. They're plump. They're healthy. Nothing unusual about that. They come out, and they do what cows do. They eat some reed grass. Nothing strange about that. But right behind these cows, there's some very malnourished cows that that come upon the scene, and they're seven in number as well. Not only are they malnourished, but these cows happen to be unnatural because they had a change in their diet. They're cannibals. And they start off feeding on the other cows. Now, if you had never seen that before, I've never seen a cow eat another cow, but I'm sure that'd be quite a sight. It was so disturbing to Pharaoh that it caused him to wake up out of his sleep. Maybe you've had a dream like that where you've been asleep and you've had a dream that so disturbed your spirit that you awoke in the middle of the night, only to find out it was just a dream. And so you eventually calm yourself and you find yourself asleep again. Same thing with Pharaoh. He finds himself asleep again, only to be greeted by another dream of a similar type. But this time, it's about grain. 
When he wakes up in the morning, he does what all of us do. When we have things that are bothering us, we generally seek or go to get advice from others. And what did he do? He sought the experts out in the dream field. And so he went to them and went not just to one expert, but to all the ones that were available to him and asked them, in light of what I've just dreamed, would you please help me to understand what this message is? Because as you remember, in ancient culture, dreams, as in some other cultures of the world, hold more weight than it does here, than they do here in America, or at least in the West. And so he seeks out advice and counsel about this field of dreams. But unfortunately, the experts are at a loss. Uh, they consult their books. They, they consult their research. But unfortunately, there's nothing in, in the writings that they have that will guide them on this matter. And so they're at a loss, which, of course, leaves Pharaoh frustrated. What could these dreams mean? And it's on to this occasion that our cupbearer friend reappears suddenly on the scene. I believe that he's in the court while this is all happening because that's where he would have been anyway. And as things are unfolding, all of a sudden, his memory is jogged. Yeah, that was this Hebrew slave that I ran into like two years ago. And what does he say? He says to Pharaoh, hey, I remember that time about two years ago when you threw me in prison. And I was in prison. And when I was in prison, I met this guy. He was a Hebrew slave. And he had the ability to interpret dreams. And they were accurate. Because in my case, I came back to work for you, and yeah, our dear friend, uh, the baker, well, you hung him, just like he said. So this guy is the guy you really want to see. He's a slave, but he can get the job done. And so Pharaoh immediately sends for him, uh, and Joseph, of course, goes through some natural preparations. So Joseph uh, is a Semite. He's, he's most likely got a beard, uh, because that, that, that's, that's his culture of the day. Uh, he's been in prison, so he's not had access most likely to water. So you can imagine what happens when you haven't taken a bath in a few weeks. Uh, you have a little bit of BO, and uh, that's not pleasant in the pre you know, in company of others. And, and so if you're going to meet a head of state, uh, you've got to change. Uh, and it, it specifically, the, Egyptian, the Egyptians like to be clean-shaved, at least at that period. They would shave their heads and shave their faces. And so he had to shave, and not only did he have to do that, he had to take a bath, and then you couldn't wear those old dirty uh, prison clothes. He had to put on some clothes. Uh, that would be fit for him standing before the head of state. And so after a wardrobe change and, and the proper pre preparation, he stands before Pharaoh. And there's some interesting things that he says. And I want to highlight the verses to make this first point, to show you this level of the house, this first level. But let's go back to the text. A few verses to highlight here, and, and you'll get the point when you see the word that is repeated in the text. Let's start off at verse 16. Uh, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, drop down to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Okay, let's drop down to verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Lastly, let's look at verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, we get a chance, first of all, to get a, a glimpse of Joseph's character because now he has matured into a man. Not only have we found out from the previous incident that Joseph is a man of integrity, but he's also a man of humility. 
Look at the text. There's a word that's repeated in the text that is the emphasis of where Joseph wants us to see, at least as the narrator portrays it. He rightly attributes in the face of power his ability is not in and of himself to interpret dreams. Joseph doesn't take credit for what he's not able to do. He puts the credit where it belongs. The reason he's able to interpret dreams is because God has given him that ability or revealed to him what the meaning of those dreams are. And so Joseph says with humility, I'm not the one who can actually help you out, but I do know somebody who can. And because of my relationship with him, we can get it worked out. The person who you actually have to get help from is God. And so you tell me to dream and I'm going to get God to, to resolve that and to share with me what it is the meaning of this dream is. And that's exactly what we see in the text. God gives Joseph the meaning of the dream. And he shares with, jo with Pharaoh, uh, through Joseph, what it is that God has determined to do in the world. What is it, at least for Egypt at this point in time, there's a two, two seven-year periods that are going to happen. The first, in the agriculture, there will be an abundance of grain. Uh, things are going to turn out well. We're going to have some banner years for the next seven years. But just following that, we're going to have famine. Things are going to plummet. Things are going to drop and be so bad that all of the greatness that we had before are going to be forgotten. That's how bad things are going to get. And so that brings us to the first floor of the house, which is simply this. God determines future events. God determines future events. Somewhere in the council of heaven, as God was sitting down with his heavenly council, and he was laying out his plan for what would befall the, the land of Egypt for the next 14 years, God had made a decision and made a decree that in light of what he wanted to do in the world, that Egypt would have a period of abundance and a period of famine. And this was God's plan. But the kindness of God that we see in the text is that God, although he has this information, doesn't mean he has to share it with humans. But on this occasion, he allows Pharaoh to peek into his divine agenda and look on the agenda and see Egypt's name and see what God has planned for Egypt. But this concept that God determines future events is also picked up by other writers in the Old Testament, as well as we see other events in which God does this. Let me show you how one writer who's a prophet by the name of Isaiah picked this up as he recorded God's words to his people as he's dealing with this idea as people are being drawn to what they see versus what they cannot see. They're being drawn to the idols in the culture around them, and yet God wants to address this attraction to idols in light of who he is. And so this is what he says through the prophet Isaiah. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Now, we've seen examples of this already in the Genesis narrative and in other places where God has determined future events. We simply need to recall to mind Abraham and Isaac's story where God foretold what the events would be to parents who were beyond childbearing years that they would have a son. And that's exactly what happened. We see the same thing in Joseph's life with this promotion. God had already told him about it when he's 17. Now he's 30 
And he, ex he experiences this promotion, although God didn't tell him how that would happen. Not only does God do that on an individual level for individuals, but he does it on a national level. The text is an example where God determines future events for nations and what will happen to nations uh, according to his plans to serve his purposes. We see the same thing with Abraham when he says to Abraham in Genesis 15 that there's going to be an exodus of the people, which we have the book of Exodus that happens hundreds of years later that describe those events. Not only does God do it on a national level, but he does it on a global level as well. If you were to turn to Daniel chapters 2 and chapter 7 and read those texts, you would see in those communicated through dreams that God divulges his plan for the agenda of the world as it relates to the nation of Israel, as he calls out in order before they happen what the world empires will be, who will rule and who will come to power. And so God does that because he's the one who determines who ultimately gets power in the world. God is the one who determines future events. But God didn't just do that in ancient times. He has done that for us as well. I'll show you a clear example of this from the book of Acts. So Paul is having a conversation with some people who are very well educated, and it's in this talk that he divulges what God has done and what God is going to do. Let me recall that to mind for you. Acts 17. Paul says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere because he has fixed the day to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, hey, listen, here's God's agenda. God has determined that there is a future day of judgment for all humanity. And the person that he's going to do the judging through is the person of Jesus Christ. How do we know that Jesus is the one that God has selected because God has done for him what he's done for no one else? He raised him from the dead as new creation. And that's how we know he's the one who's appointed to judge the living and the dead. And in light of what we know about God, this means that on every human's agenda, there is an unavoidable future event that's on the horizon to which will affect all of us. Now, that's floor one. So let us go ahead and move on now and take the stairs and look at floor two of this house. God determines future events, but floor two tells us something different, but it rests on floor one. We see this floor in Genesis chapter 41, verses 25 through 36. We noticed in that part of the text, as I read earlier, that Joseph explained the meaning of the dream to Pharaoh so that he could understand it. That's the second floor. God reveals these events that he's determined through his servants. So God determines future events, and then he reveals those events through his servants. See, Pharaoh, although he you know, sought the counsel of the experts of his day, they were not able to help him. It's only through a man that God had appointed, the one who was in relationship with him, that God's plans were made known. And that's exactly how God operates in the world. And we see him repeat this same pattern throughout history. Let me show you how one prophet uh, records that. His name is Amos, chapter 3, verse 7. He says this, For the Lord God does not, I'm sorry, does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So Amos is talking to the people, and he's talking about this concept of the idea that there are times in history, specifically in Israel's history at that point, where God declares or decrees disaster upon a city. But before he does that disaster, he reveals that 
to his servants, the prophets. One of the marks of a true prophet, if you were to be a true prophet of God, is that you actually have to stand in the counsel of God. That is, that you're allowed into the heavenly throne room, if you will, or, or temple, and there God holds court or holds session with those who are in his counsel, and you get to listen in and hear what God has determined, and then you're able to go and speak to humans, and that's what makes you a true prophet. So he says, when God has declared a, a disaster upon a city, he calls as a, a man, perhaps a woman, to, to, to stand in his counsel, to hear what he's determined, and then they then are, are charged with going and sharing that with other human beings because God's pattern is that when he determines events, he uses his servants to make those events known to other human beings. Now, that was in the past. God used prophets. But something life-changing has happened that has altered the course of history. That is, it is the arrival, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result of that, God has called a new community of people around Jesus that have been defined by him which we refer to as the church, and that's who God is currently using to share his plans with the world. Now, right before Jesus left earth to take his position on the throne of God, uh, as he was lifted up in his ascension, he, he said something to those who were alive at that point who were his followers that are relevant for us today. Let me recall this well-known passage, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we know a few days later, the Holy Spirit did descend from heaven and take up residence in the followers of Jesus, and they became his witnesses. And we see an example of that in the life of Peter, where Peter now is breaking the cultural boundary as he steps outside of the nation of Israel to encounter those who are not physical descendants of Abraham and to talk about what God has done and what God is going to do. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says to this group of people who are not in his cultural sphere as he breaks outside of those walls. Notice this, Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us, who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Like Joseph, Peter is faithful to share what God has done specifically in the life of Jesus Christ and what he's determined to do, that Jesus is going to judge the world on God's behalf. God worked through Jesus. God determined that Jesus is going to be the judge, and that's what's on God's agenda. 
And if you want to have a positive experience on the day of judgment, then there is some things that you need to do, which is, as the text says, come to faith in Jesus. It's as if God has given us a newspaper, but it has tomorrow's news today. Even today, God still works through his people, and thus it becomes incumbent upon us to continue what the apostles started. It has been entrusted to us that we bear witness about what God has done and what he's going on to do in the future. As the church and as individuals, this is our responsibility as those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We are called to be witnesses to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family members, to our children, and yes, even to those we might consider to be enemies. We have been charged with revealing what God is going to do. This brings me to my final floor of this home that I want to show you. And we're going to see this in the final verses of Genesis chapter 41, verses 37 through verse 40, 30, 45. And this is what it is. God expects humans to act wisely. Not only does God determine the future, not only does he reveal those events through his servants, but in light of the fact that he has revealed those events, he expects humans to act wisely. So not only do we see in the text that Joseph shares with Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream, but he also does something tactfully, uh, and that is to give a recommendation of how he ought to live in light of what God is going to do. And so he lays out a three-part plan for Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, first of all, you need to get a vizier. You need to put somebody in position to oversee all of this so you don't have to worry about it. But this guy can't work alone. He's going to need a staff team, uh, some local regional overseers of the area. So to make sure that in the area of that, in that specific area, that that job is being done. And, and then they will report, report to the vizier to make sure that the whole country is being taken care of. And then in addition to that, the third part of the plan is you need to institute a 20 percent tax during the years of the abundance so that when we get to the years of famine, people won't die, that the nation can survive. Now, at this point, Pharaoh is faced with a choice. Now, you've got to remember who Pharaoh is talking to in light of the culture of that day. Where was Joseph before he came into the court? In prison. He's talking to a head of state, and he just got out of jail. And he's going to talk about matters of state with the head of state, and he's been in jail. Now, what's the likelihood that a head of state might be willing to say, I'm going to listen to you, Mr. Prisoner? Thank you. I'll take a state about how to run a country from you. Right. But in this case, he's wise enough to listen because he recognizes something that's different about Joseph. Look at the text and notice in the text what you'll see there is what he says about Joseph. He recognizes by Joseph's display of wisdom that is not Joseph, but there's someone operating through Joseph. Here he refers to it as the spirit of God. He recognizes that the wisdom Joseph is exhibiting is not by human means, that this is divine work in Joseph, and thus he listens. And because he listens to the advice, we can count Pharaoh in the category of the wise instead of the category of the fools. So as we read in Genesis chapter 41, verses 42, 42 through 45, and I won't reread the text now, but we see uh, Pharaoh acting in a way of that we know from past history about what we've discovered about ancient history, that he does the very same things that are patterned for us in history about putting a signet ring, giving him a robe. And that's exactly what happens here 
in the text. And we see from history, archaeological evidence, uh, and, and then the writing of the text, how those two things match up. And then there's this one other note at the very end. You might wonder why it's there. Why is there the mention of Joseph and who he marries? Because what, what Pharaoh is doing is sealing Joseph to a status of nobility. Why is that? Because he's having him marry into nobility. So he ends up putting him in a family that is, if not the most uh, influential priestly family of the day. So he marries into that family by Pharaoh's command. He takes a daughter from that family and puts her in, and that then seals him as a noble. Now, this whole ordeal reminds me of something that a, a verse out of Proverbs, and it comes in Proverbs chapter 22, and this is what it says. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. See, a wise person in light of knowledge of the future takes appropriate action in the present so as that their life doesn't end up in a place that it ought not be. But the naive and the foolish person knows what's coming and makes no preparation. And thus, when they arrive upon that moment, it overtakes them like a lion and they suffer for it. But Pharaoh is not the only one who's been informed about what God has determined to do and is faced with a choice. We likewise are like in Pharaoh, like Pharaoh in the position of making a decision about what we will do what God has revealed. God has taken his servants and he has revealed to you what he's going to do. And now the question stands before you, what will you do with this information that God has told you? Will you act wisely or will you act like a fool? So there are two groups of people here. Let me address both because you might be wondering, what does wise living look like in light of that? Let me start off with the first group. You're here today, but you've not yet come to a point where you're sure that this idea of being a committed follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, is what's for you in life. You're not at that point yet. You, 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 you know what God has said, but you're not buying this whole Jesus thing yet. What, what, what might acting wisely look like for you? Let me share what God's servants would say to you if they were here right now. Let me take you to Paul. And Paul is in a very similar position to Joseph. He's just come out of the prison house, and he's talking to a king. But notice what he says to him. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. God, uh, Paul gives you a three-part plan of how you ought to act in light of what God is going to do. Three recommendations for you. Paul says you should repent, you should turn to God, and then you should perform deeds that are in keeping with repentance. So let me rephrase that. There has to be within you a change of mind, a change of mind such that you recognize several things and you agree with God about those things. You agree with God that there is, by his definition, sin in your life. You agree that there have been, there's been rebellion. You've been a disobedient to the commands of God, and that has been detrimental to your life. 
And you agree that in light of the fact that you have sin in your life, you don't have the ability within yourself to free yourself from the consequences of those sins. And thus you are helpless before God and you are in need of what God offers. And so you need to seek God for mercy. So he says once you've come to that point, then you've got to turn to God. How does he say we ought to do that? He tells us in another place. Paul said this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here the him is Jesus. He says that the way that you come to receive God's mercy is by coming to place your faith, that trust in none other than Jesus Christ, God's own son. But he says this faith is of such a nature that he names a third thing. That is, you ought to do deeds that are in keeping with repentance. If you've had a change of mind, it ought to produce in you a change of life. This faith is a faith, if it is a living faith, the faith that saves a person is a faith that changes a person. The scriptures know nothing of a faith that does nothing in a person's life. You have it, you profess it, but it never changes who you are. That's not the faith the Bible's talking about. That faith is a dead faith, and it will not save you on the day of judgment. But a faith that is living, that's in Christ, that's trusting, if your trust is in Christ, then your life will begin to show evidence in the choices you make. That's how you know whether the faith is alive or dead. What does he say to you? Repent, turn to God, and then do deeds that are in keeping with that repentance. Now let's talk to the believers in the room, so you're probably the majority of those who are sitting here. If you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ, how do you act wisely in light of what God has revealed through his servants? So I told you the last time I was up here that my community group, we're in the book of Revelation, and it is a fun book. It is fun. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's, it's encouraging. And I told you that we have read so far, we've, we've covered the seven letters, and I, and I think that the seven letters speak to us this morning through the ages because of what Jesus says. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus encounters believers, and he talks to them directly about how they're living. And he tells them about unwise ways of living because in the text, one of the words that's repeated is repentance. Jesus makes comments because he talks about this fact that whenever churches gather, Jesus is always present observing what's going on in the churches just like this morning. He's here observing what's going on. And so in light of what the church is doing, he then lays out things that they ought to do and things that they are not to do. Let me share some of those things with you because it's true of all believers. You can fall into one of these categories. Let me walk you through the churches and what Jesus says. So from the church at Ephesus, what we learn is that we can lose the love that we had for Christ at first. That, that our love for Jesus over the time of following him can become cold. The flame is not as, as hot as it, it used to be. And so I would ask you, is that where you are today? When you look at your life over time, is the love that you have for Christ as fervent and as hot for him as it was when you first came to faith? Or if you were to look at the fire of your love for Christ, it's diminished over time. 
Are you as passionate about following Jesus? Are you as strict about seeking to be obedient to Christ as you were when you first started this journey? Or have you just relaxed into a state of it's okay? Not only does he talk to the church at Ephesus, but he takes us to the church at Smyrna. From there we find out that there's a reality that believers, not only can they grow cold in their love for him, and no longer do the deeds that they did at first. Now they've diminished in their love. But we learned that, that sometimes uh, fear of suffering, like we talked about the persecuted church today, can cause a believer to want to disassociate with Jesus. Does anybody outside this community of faith know you're a Christian? Are you okay with those who are not in this context knowing that you relate to, identify with Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Or are you afraid of ridicule? So I remember when I was at the University of Houston, I was a young guy then trying to be bold in my faith. And on this particular day, I felt extra spiritual. So I decided what I was going to do was don a distinctively Christian T-shirt to wear on campus to be a witness for Christ. So I put my T-shirt on and I still remember the walk. It was a long walk across campus as I made my way from the College of Technology to the College of Business Administration. And I remember walking straight down the center so that the oncoming crowd as the flood could see what I had on my T-shirt. But what I did not expect was how I would feel as I got certain looks and comments along the way. In light of that, that next day when I woke up, I decided I wasn't going to do that again. Why? Because the reality is we know that if we're to be open about our following of Jesus Christ, there comes a price with it. That's what the Christians who we pray for today, they realize that following Jesus is costly. And that's the reason we pray for them, so that their faith wouldn't fail when they have to pay a cost. And likewise, the same is true for us. And Jesus calls those who are here to, to change direction, if that's the case. From the church at Pergamum, we learn that believers can fall into what we might refer to as doctrinal compromise. There is a reality that a follower of Jesus Christ can embrace teaching that encourages sin in disguise. Perhaps greed or perhaps some form of immorality instead of generosity and holiness. And so I ask you, what teaching have you accepted? Who are the spiritual influences in your life? Are the ones that you're listening to in your life just allowing you by their spiritual teaching to be able to, to, be able to advocate, to be able to, 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 to utilize and, and to grow your selfish and sinful desires under the guise of being spiritual? Is it just a cover-up so that you can have what you want and feel okay about it? Because God supposedly has given his approval for you to live that way, even though the scriptures don't say that. Is that the teaching that you've embraced? From the church of Thyatira, we learned that believers can fall not only into doctrinal, doctrinal compromise, but can fall actually into moral compromise. So when you're not at church, what kind of life are you living? What kind of decisions are you making in your personal life? Let's say that Jesus decided that he had a little time on his schedule and he decided to drop by and visit you. Well, Jesus, if he's dropped by and visited you that week, would he be okay with the decision you've been making in life up to this point and where you are in your life currently? Would he give you an approval? Or would he have, a, would he have one of those moments where he said, come sit down on the couch with me, sit real close. We've got to have a talk. 
put his arm around you just so you can absorb the blow that's about to come. <laughs> See, there's a reality that we're either living by the standard of what Scripture says or we're living by our own moral compass. But we're not doing both. You may have Scripture, but you may not allowing it to be what is determining what is right and wrong in your life. It's this word that should trump every decision you make. If this word says it's wrong, it's not about what you think. It's not about even how you feel. It doesn't matter. This is what is right. No matter what you think about it or what you feel about it, it's already been determined. Now, you can decide to not live by that, but then you will live in moral compromise. From the church at Sardis, we find out that believers can actually lapse into a state of spiritual deadness or comatose, a comatose state. And so I would ask you, if you were to review your life right now, or have you been making spiritual progress in life? 20 years ago, you might have been a Christian, you might have come, but has there been any real spiritual progress in your life? Or are you the same person that you were in the same place of your faith that you were when you first came? Still talking about that you need milk when you should be on meat. Is that where you are in your spiritual life? Or are you simply going through the motions? And if somebody was really to pull back the, the covers upon you, what they would see is not a living faith, but one that's really just dead and ready to be buried. Is that where you are? From the church of Philadelphia, we realize that hard times can cause believers to give up on the Christian life. Are, are you at that point? You, you've been holding on, but you're at this point in your life, your Christian life, where you're saying, I think it's just better if I just let go. Th this Christian thing is not working out like I thought it was going to work out. I came to Jesus believing that my life was going to look differently, but all I've got is suffering and no change. And so I'm at a point where I just want to walk away because I think that I could have a better life. If I were to look at your life, it looks like a flower that is withered in the desert sun. Is that where you are? And lastly, there's the church at Laodicea, and we learn from there that believers can lapse into a state of lukewarmness, to which Jesus says the most strong statement, although he communicates his love, that they're detestable to him. Have the cares of this life caused you to become ineffective for Christ? You're so busy chasing sports. You're so busy trying to get the house. You're so busy trying to take the, take the next vacation. You're so busy trying to, to build up your 401k. You're so busy worried about retirement. You're so busy trying to get what you're trying to get that you never take time to focus on the things of Christ. Or you're caught up with the riches of this world. That's what you're chasing. Yeah, you, you paid Jesus some homage. You come here on the weekend, but that's not the direction of your life. You're not trying to live for Jesus. You're living for money. You're living for the things of this world so that you can live a comfortable life because that's what is your God, because that's what's driving you. Are you too busy for God? You don't have any time for him. Never find time to pray. Never find time to read the scriptures. Never find time to do the things that he says because your life is too busy. Well, if you're that busy, you're too busy. If I were to ask you, if I were to do a fruit inspection, would I find any fruit hanging on your tree? Let me close with this. So I like to read weird stuff because I'm kind of weird. <laughs> if you know me, you know that about me. 
my wife was even embarrassed the fact that I said that last night. But I'm saying it anyway, because she's not here. I hope she's not watching on the internet. Oh. <laughs> anyway, nevertheless. So I like to read weird stuff. Uh, one of the topics that I enjoy reading about is life after death. Perhaps it's a hazard of the profession that I'm in. Uh, I enjoy reading about life after death. So I've been reading a book recently, as I've read other books on the topic, by a Catholic scholar by the name of uh, Terrence Nichols, and he, he writes about this. But there's this one specific story that he tells in one part of the book that I find interesting, and I want to share that with you today. So let me share with you what he says in the story, because it's relevant to where I want to end up at. So there was this uh, specific lady who, uh, whose name was Pam Reynolds. She was a native of Atlanta, and she was a songwriter. And some unfortunate events started to happen in her life. So back in 1991, Pam Reynolds began experiencing dizziness and head pain. And so she went to the doctor like we should all do. And uh, she was diagnosed uh, after having a CAT scan with a large aneurysm at the base of the brain. Uh, and in light of that, they then said, most likely you won't have long to live. So what do you do when you don't have long to live? Well, you try to find a, a solution. And that's exactly what she did. And she was referred to uh, a specific practice that was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Robert Spessler, who was the head of Barrow uh, Neurological Institute there uh, in Phoenix. And he was, going, he was willing, in light of hearing her case, to do on her this experimental surgery, which they nicknamed Operation Standstill. Uh, in the operation, at least as he described it, the book went something like this. The body of the, the patient is chilled to between 50 and 60 degrees, all heart and brain activity is intentionally stopped. The blood is drained from the brain, the aneurysm is repaired, then the blood is warmed and the, then pumped back into the body and then the heart is restarted. This is exactly what they did to, to Reynolds Pam uh, in this procedure. And in, in addition to that, uh, she was outfitted during this procedure with uh, various instruments so that they could measure her brain waves, her heart rate, her blood pressure, her core body temperature, her brain temperature, her blood oxygen levels. Uh, they they uh, taped her eyelids shut and they put uh, speakers in her ears with, which emitted uh, a loud clicking sound to test the responsiveness of her auditory nerve uh, of her brainstem. Then she was placed under general anesthesia. They then cut into her skull after they had, uh, had her heart arrested and uh, ceased all brain activity. And, and during this whole point, they're watching the instruments and there's no activity. Four hours later, thankfully, she made it through the surgery. It was a success. Uh, the aneurysm was removed, uh, her, her brain repaired, and, uh, and she came back to go on to live, uh, at least as, as far as I know up until this point right now, uh, unless she had some accident this weekend or something like that. But, but other than that, she is. But the reason I tell you this story is because of what happened after she was awakened. After she was awakened, uh, she explained that she had had a unique experience during these four hours that she had had an out-of-the-body experience. Now, of course, whenever we have these types of things, for us, we can't talk about the otherworldly things because we have nothing to verify that against. So in order for it to be testable, we have to verify it against the evidence that we have within our sphere of knowledge. And that's exactly what they did. They documented what she said, and what they found out was that she was able to describe events visually and auditory that were going on during the procedure in the operating room while she had no perceived consciousness. Not only was she able to describe the things that were happening, which she had no knowledge about, but she even was able to talk about a conversation that happened while they were operating on her, that she observed watching them operate on her body. She described that 
Uh, during the process, she heard one of the nurses say that they could not go through one of the arteries and that it was too small, which that when they verified it, that's exactly what happened. They had tried to go through the uh, right femoral artery, but it was too small, so they switched over to the left femoral artery to be able to drain the blood. Her report in every detail was accurate. She shouldn't have been able to see or hear anything. Now, the reason this case is good is because it's documented. It's a nice case study with verifiable facts to it. Now, why do I share this story with you? For this simple one reason. Your life, your consciousness will go on after you die. Now, as a pastor, that's relevant to me. Because as a pastor, there is a weight that I carry, as I'm sure that other pastors in this room, because there are other pastors in this room with me, not just in living water, but pastors who served and either retired or stepped out of ministry for various reasons. But there's a weight that we carry as pastors, because one of the tasks that we have in light of our responsibility is in doing funerals, right? Either we attend them because it's a member of the church under our care, or it's because we've been charged with presiding over that funeral. And I always, the question always arises in my mind, no matter how many funerals I've been to, and I've been to a few in my life over the years, I think about the experience that that person who's now laying before me deceased, what they experienced just on the other side of death. When they came out of their body, and I'll draw upon an imagery from an old movie, who was it there? that greeted them. When they stepped out of their body in that moment to realize that life had not ended, maybe as they supposed, what, was it an angelic visitor who said, child of God, God has sent me. I've been waiting on you. We knew you were about to come. Today was your day and your time, and God's waiting to see you. Christ is waiting to see you. Let me take you there. Let's greet you. Let me take you so you can go into his presence, and there you will rest until the day of resurrection. Come with me. Let me take you to heaven. Or when they come out of their body, they step out only to realize that what they thought was the end was not the end. And as they step out, there's a dark presence that's waiting for them. And that dark presence takes a hold of them. And despite the screaming that they give and the objections that they give, they are carried screaming into the bowels of hell to await the day of judgment. And in that moment, as I thought about that, I realized that no matter how long you've lived, you could have lived 100 years. It won't seem long enough. You could have enjoyed all the pleasures that this world has had to offer, and it will seem like it was fleeting as they carry you to your destination. And I believe that's the reason why Jesus said in his ministry as he was encouraging us, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his soul? Brothers and sisters, God has told you what he's going to do. Now you're faced with the choice. Will you act wisely or will you act foolishly? The decision is yours. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that it will find good soil. And that, Lord, we might consider how we live, not just those who are hearing, but me, myself, Lord, that I would take seriously what your word says because none of us are exempt. Lord, would you encourage us to take steps of faith? Sometimes they're small. Sometimes we, we go back instead of going forward. But 
but, but you encounter us, as you said in the book of Revelation, because you love us. And you want us to be prepared for what we know is coming. Help us to order our lives accordingly. Would you please do this for us right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a final song. Give you a couple of announcements and we'll dismiss you in just a moment. I love you. I love you.